I'd like to speak to you today about three words. Three words that have the power to change your life forever. Three simple words that can literally save you, pick you up when you've fallen, find you when you're lost, rescue you when your whole world is falling apart. Three words that can heal your marriage, restore broken relationships, deliver you from the cycles of failure, addiction, whatever. These three words can give you hope in the dark night of your soul. Three words that when spoken and believed will transform the way you think, feel, and act about God, about yourself, and about others. Three words, revolutionary words, that summarize everything you have in the Bible. The Old Testament promises it. The Gospels reveal it. The epistles point back to and describe it. Everything we do and everything we say together as a church over the next six months will have this great confession as our focus and as our guide. Three words. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. May I ask you just to close your eyes for a moment and let those words seep into your soul. Say them to yourself silently. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is our Lord. Can we say this great confession out loud together? Together. Jesus is Lord. Again, Jesus is Lord. Thank you. The key, of course, is not just saying the words but believing them, applying them, submitting our hearts and souls to them, intentionally and fully opening up space in our lives to receive them so that God can reign. And Jesus is Lord. What does that look like? How will that happen? So I'd like to start with the story. Not my story. The story that we have in the Gospels, all four writers point to this story of Jesus being Lord. But I want to just start briefly in the Gospel of Mark, the first Gospel written. Probably the Gospel that Matthew and Luke had access to in writing and filling out the story of Jesus. And in Mark, he's, he's really focused. He goes right to the point. And he writes his Gospel so that Christians then and now might remember the words and the deeds of Jesus and understand that because of who he is, he is Lord. So Mark tells the story by beginning at the end, declaring that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the world's one true Lord. But as the gospel unfolds, it becomes pretty clear that very few, if any, understand what that means. 
Mark writes with urgency. He uses the word immediately over and over and over again. He wants us to know that Jesus is Lord. He wants us to know that Jesus came to inaugurate God's kingdom, to bring here on earth what is in heaven. So there's no genealogy, there's no birth narrative, there's no childhood background of Jesus as in the other gospels. Instead, Mark goes directly to the start of Jesus' baptism and then public life of ministry. And he has the first words of Jesus being pointing to this great climactic turn of history. All of history has come to this point, and now the time is fulfilled. The time has come. All Israel has been waiting for this moment. For years, hundreds of years, they've been waiting for this good news of rescue. The long-awaited Messiah has finally come. He is coming in the person of Jesus. God's kingdom is near. This is good news. God is doing something new that he's never done before, and it will culminate all of what he's done in the person of Jesus, and it will change the world. It will change our world if we can hear it. So Jesus says, you need to get ready. We need to get ready for this kingdom. Repent and believe the good news. As I mentioned earlier, the word repent is metanoia. It it means a turning around, a changing of a mind. We're going this way, and now we're going to go this way. A total change of mind, leaving one way of thinking and feeling and acting and embracing and learning and living into a whole new way of thinking and feeling, and acting. A new kingdom is coming, Jesus says, and the only way you can receive it is by changing the way you think, turning from the way you have been thinking and turning to the way Jesus is encouraging us to think, feel, and act, and that is no small change. It's revolutionary. Just in case we miss the point, Mark moves to an illustration. He has Jesus telling the story of Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee. And there he encounters two brothers, fishermen, doing what fishermen do, casting their nets in the lake. And Jesus calls out to him and says, Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, the two brothers, Simon and Andrew, leave their nets and follow Jesus. Jesus walks a little bit further and runs into two other brothers, probably partners with Steve and Andrew, I mean Simon and Andrew in in their fishing, and calls to them the same, follow me. And once again, without delay, the scripture says, the two brothers follow Jesus. And then Mark adds this detail, and leave their father in the boat. I want to pause a moment and think about that. Why does Mark add that detail about leaving? Imagine you lived in the first century. You're the son or a daughter of a family who, as far as you can remember, as long back as the stories are told about your family, your family was a fishing family. 
Your great-great-grandfather was a fisherman. Your great-grandfather was a fisherman. Your grandfather was a fisherman. Your father is a fisherman. And for all you know, your sons and their sons will be fishermen. Get the picture? This is the family business. Each generation passing it down from father to son. In other words, fishing was everything to these men. And now to us as we imagine ourselves there. It's your family. It's your livelihood. It's your security. It's your past. It's your future. And you give it all up. That's what Mark says repentance looks like. Leave it all behind. To follow Jesus is to turn and go a direction that's new. And you never go back. To follow Jesus is to repent and turn around. It means giving up and turning from. Giving up and turning from your past. Your regrets. Your failures. Your successes. Your pride. Giving up and turning from your securities. Your bank account. Your home all those things that you have come to trust in instead of Jesus. It means giving up and turning from control. I'm not going to control my marriage anymore, my boss, my employees, my relationships, my church. Do you know that the opposite of faith is not unbelief. The opposite of faith is control. Frequently, when Jesus encounters people in the Gospels, he asks them to do something, and more often than not, he asks them to give up something. You'll remember the story of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus, what must I do to be saved? And he says, keep the commandments. I've done that. What else? And Jesus looks at him, and Mark says, he looks at him and loves him, and then gave him the worst news of his life. Go sell all you have and follow me. And that man went away sad because he had a lot of stuff. Or the woman caught in adultery, he says, go, sin no more. It's the same for us. What are you hanging on to that God has asked you to give up? Are you trying to control your life? Or are you trusting Jesus? To repent and follow Jesus requires giving up control. Have you done that? You see, faith that is not self-sacrificing, that doesn't have this giving up of control, will always become a mere religion. You can say the words, but there's no power. There's no change. You cannot follow Jesus if your primary concern is yourself. That's how radical this call is. So Mark celebrates these four fishermen giving up all to repent and follow Jesus. But he goes on to tell the story throughout his gospel that repentance is only a start, that discipleship is a lifelong journey, 
It's learning to, to say and to live every day, every moment, to embrace every circumstance. Jesus is Lord. In fact, throughout the gospel, as you read it, if you read it from one end to another, you're constantly understanding that the disciples' expectations and assumptions about who Jesus is and what he was going to do was wrong, was constantly proven false. Over and over again, the, the, the disciples are corrected or, or surprised by what Jesus said and what he did. Jesus did not fit their idea of a Messiah. Now, before we get too hard on them, let's remember, they didn't have a New Testament to read and study as we do. They didn't have, as we do, the knowledge that Jesus would be betrayed and he'd be tried, and he'd be crucified, and he would be raised. They couldn't Google Jesus' name and get this information. All they had was the oral history that was given to them through the Torah and the prophets in synagogue. They didn't even have that to read. So their expectation of the Messiah was born out of this deep need to be rescued that Jesus then would come in power. He would settle old scores. And he would set all the world to right. They imagined that Jesus would conquer Rome, defeat all enemies, and set up empire forever. What happens? Jesus comes to serve and to die. So when Jesus says, follow me, he's inviting us, as he was the disciples, on a journey, on a journey to learn about God's true Messiah. And part of that learning might mean unlearning our false assumptions about who Jesus is, what power is, and what his purpose is. Perhaps our mental model, like their mental model, needed to be changed before the release of God's Glory in Jesus as Lord can be fully confessed and understood. Four different times in the book of Mark, Mark talks and describes Jesus as kind of being exasperated. Do you still not understand? Are your hearts still hardened? I wonder if that's true of us as well sometimes. Have we become so familiar with our assumptions about God that we really don't know Jesus is Lord? Have we become so comfortable about what the church is or should be that Jesus looks a whole lot more like us than us like him? Who is controlling your life, your church, your fill in the blank? Is it you or Jesus? Throughout Mark's gospel, the disciples rarely understand. In fact, the only beings that seem to immediately know who Jesus is and what he came for are demons. In fact, you have to read almost to the very end, chapter 16, where one person finally gets it. It's the centurion standing at the foot of Jesus and watched him die and said, surely... This is the Son of God. But even at the end of the gospel, Mark observes and that Jesus had to rebuke the 11 
for their lack of belief, even after the resurrection. Why? What was lacking? What was lacking in the disciples? We've already mentioned how committed they were. They gave up everything. They were sincere and devoted men. When others had left Jesus, they stood by. And and when they abandoned Jesus, when he was arrested, they all felt deep remorse. It was not their devotion. They were fully devoted. They believed with all their ability, just like some of us. But something was still missing. No one was saying, Jesus is Lord, after Jesus was raised. And here's where we need the book of Acts and the writings of Paul to fill the story out. Because we know that after the resurrection and before Jesus was raised to glory, he instructs his disciples to stay in Jerusalem and wait and pray, promising that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And so they waited and they prayed for weeks. And then early Pentecost morning, the promise is fulfilled. The Spirit is poured out and everything changes. The hearts and the minds of the disciples are open to see a new reality. Suddenly, they remember what Jesus promised in that upper room recorded in John 14. I must go, but in my place, I'll ask the Father. He will send the Holy Spirit. He will send the Advocate, and he'll explain everything to you. And now it's happening. So Peter stands up. The person who five weeks earlier denied that he even knew Jesus stands up and now filled with the fullness of God's spirit, says, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. The people who heard it were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. What must we do? And so Peter responds, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The pro- this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all who will call God Lord, Jesus Lord. That's us. This promise is for us. Paul puts it this way, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is good news. This is life-changing news. God has come to us in Jesus Christ to defeat all powers and to set you free, free from the sting of death, free from the consequence of sin, free from whatever that thing is that is holding you down, abusing you, telling you you're not good enough. No, in Christ, you are all because of who he is. God has rescued you in Christ. Can you see it? Can you accept it? Jesus, the crucified one, is by his resurrection and God raising him and exalting him to his right hand. This Jesus is Lord over all the universe. Everything. Confessing Jesus as Lord, you see, is not a one-time event. 
It's not a prayer we played, prayed a long time ago. It's a lifelong discovery, a day-by-day commitment to listen, to learn, and submit to the upside-down power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul writes to the church in Philippi, and he calls that church to a comprehensive change of mind under the rule of Christ. Have this mind in you among yourselves, which was yours, which was also in Christ Jesus. You see, the lordship of Jesus calls for a radically new way of thinking, a radically new way of engaging the world that stands in stark contrast to the way we thought and engaged the world before. It means giving up human power, giving up pride, giving up control. And note here that Paul is talking to the church, not just to individuals. This is a shared journey where we together adopt a way of life, a way of thinking, feeling, and acting that's characterized by humility, servanthood, and obedience. So Paul writes and goes on, Jesus, who was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. To proclaim Jesus as Lord means letting go, giving up your grasp for control. Do you know what the sign for Jesus is in sign language? You know what that is? It's this. Nail scarred hands. You know, you can't hang on to things when you have nails driven through your hands. Jesus had every right. He could have called down heaven's armies, but he didn't. Because as Hebrew tells us, for the joy set before him, for the joy of knowing you, would one be one day believe in him, he endured suffering. That's our Savior. That's your Savior. That's your Lord. Do you know him? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? That's our confession. That's the power of transforming life. And it happens through submission to the crucified, risen, and exalted Lord. This is the opposite of being in control. The lordship of Jesus Christ brings a new reality, and it brings a new activity. Paul goes on to say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out what God has put in because of his lordship. To declare Jesus as Lord means, God, I submit to you. I lay down my life Would you do your work and your will in me by your power? There is no lordship without obedience. Can you see this? Can you receive this? Will you submit to Jesus as Lord and enter into this new reality? Will you give up control and open up a space for Jesus to reign in your life? 
in your marriage, in your relationships, in this church, in every circumstance of your life. For example, do you feel hopeless, disheartened, or powerless? Let me read some words for Paul that you can apply right now. Jesus as Lord means claiming the truth that God has already provided to you the hope of Jesus, the riches of his glorious inheritance, and his incomparably great power for you. That same power that God used when he raised Jesus from the dead and seated it at his right hand, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. This is your hope. This is your reality now and forever. It changes everything. Have you been abused, discarded, unloved? Can you receive the good news that God has come to you in Jesus to strengthen you with the power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith, and that you, being rooted and established in love, may have the power to grasp how wide and long and deep is the love of Jesus Christ, and to know this love in your being that surpasses all understanding, and that you might be filled to the measure of the fullness of Christ. Can you... Live into that truth because Jesus is Lord. Are you tied up in bondage or sin, failure, addiction? Can you see that because God has conquered all powers in Christ, he can rescue you from the dominion of darkness and bring you into the kingdom of a son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Over these next six months, I invite you on a journey where we can discover together what it means to trust Jesus as Lord. Where we begin each morning confessing, Jesus, your Lord, be Lord of my day. Where we end each day saying, thank you, Father, for making Jesus Lord. And throughout the day, in every consequence, in every event of the day, we can say boldly, Jesus is Lord. I invite you on a journey to discover how these three words can change your life. Jesus is Lord. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you that we have the privilege of knowing you, knowing your son, And I pray that now, as you did on Pentecost, and as you have done for believers throughout the years since, would you pour out your spirit in our hearts to know the reality that Jesus is Lord, that nothing can separate us from his love, and that our life can change, that there is a new reality. Give us courage and hope and wisdom to walk into that. For your glory, 
we declare together, Jesus is Lord. Amen. As you come to the communion table this morning, and before you do that, I'd like you to just spend a few moments in silence here, examining those things, if there are any, in your life that have been kept from Jesus being Lord. What do you need to surrender to Jesus? As God, through the Holy Spirit, brings something to mind, I just invite you to pray silently now. Jesus, I surrender my marriage. I surrender my pride. I surrender my work. I surrender whatever it is that you've been keeping back, haven't fully given to Jesus. And when you come to the table this morning, you leave it at the table. And in receiving the elements and you return to your seats, you've left behind what's keeping you from truly walking into and experiencing the reality of Jesus as Lord. This is a holy moment. This is a time where you and all of us together can give our life to Jesus, our all, and remember him and receive the good news that God raised Jesus from the dead and he is Lord. Those sitting on the outside, if you will walk um, out to the walls and then come up, receive the elements and go down the middle aisle. If you're sitting in the two middle aisles, uh, come down the middle and then go up to the side aisles. Come and receive the elements and we'll take them back to your seats and then I'll lead us in partaking of the Lord's body and blood together. Come to the table of Jesus who is Lord.
of this table and this bread and this cup, this act of remembrance makes absolutely no sense unless Jesus is Lord. So as we partake of this bread and this cup, let's remember that what we're doing is confessing that Jesus Christ lived, he died, he was raised, and he's coming again. And we know this because scripture, in the words of Jesus, promised it. Beginning on that night when he was betrayed, and he took bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Would you take and eat this together, the body of Christ? Oh, Lord, even as you became real around the breaking of bread, when you divided loaves to the 5,000, when you broke bread in Emmaus and their eyes were enlightened. When you broke bread at that shore side with the disciples just before you were raised. Lord, Father, make Jesus alive in our hearts today. And we thank you and bless this cup now. And Jesus took the cup and said, this is the blood of the new covenant a new reality, a new possibility in your life, purchased for us by the blood of Jesus on the cross. Take and drink it whenever you do. Do so in remembrance of Jesus. Let's take this together.
song to rise to you when temptation comes my way and when I cannot stand a fall on you Jesus you're my hope and stay and when I cannot stand a fall on you Jesus, you're my hope and stay. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. My one suggesting beginning today that we as all of us together in our families if we're single with our friends to have a daily scripture reading and they'll follow we've suggested scriptures outlined for you and on the back describe how to use it but simply to read the scripture together so that we're all on the same passage on the same page together okay please do that this will also be on the website so each morning each evening just a short scripture we're asking you to do that with others, with family, pray, and then we have some directions about how to do that. So let's not close in prayer. Let's close in a blessing. The difference is you don't have to close your eyes. Um, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you, give you peace, and may above all things today, and throughout this week, you know that Jesus is Lord. Go in peace. Thank you.